We'll hear argument now in number 89-17-14, Harriet Pauley versus Beth Energy Mines, consolidated with Director of Officer of Workmen's Compensation Programs, Consolidated Coal Company versus Director. Uh, Mr. Solomons. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> and may it please the Court. The Black Lung Benefits Act provides a workers' compensation-type benefit to coal miners and their families on account of total disability or death due to black lung disease. The statute has no other purpose. In the cases before the Court, the fact-finders <clears throat> have determined that Mr. Dayton and Mr. Taylor do not have black lung disease. Mr. Polly had an early stage of the disease, but it was determined in his case that he had no disability or impairment due to this disease at all. Dayton, Taylor, and Polly nevertheless believe that they are entitled to be compensated for totally disabling black lung disease, even though they do not have it. The reason that they give is that a fair factual inquiry into the truth of the matters in their cases is, they say, prohibited by Section 402F2 <clears throat> of the Black Lung Benefits Act, which they say required the Department of Labor to write eligibility regulations that irrebuttably presumed their entitlement to benefits. The Department of Labor wrote extremely liberal regulations that presumed all of the hard parts of their cases, the hard factual parts, in favor of the claimants. But those presumptions are not irrebuttable. The questions that have been presented here this morning are, first, whether Section 402F2 of the Black Lung Act required the Department of Labor to enact such irrebuttable presumptions, and secondly, if, that, if it did, whether Section 402F2 is constitutionally viable to the extent that it irrebuttably and retroactively imposes upon these mine operators the obligation to pay for harm that either they did not cause or that does not exist. <clears throat> we do not believe that it is necessary to reach the due process questions presented because Section 402F2 does not prohibit factual inquiry into the truth in these cases. We think that a fair reading of the Act, in its context, leads to several key conclusions. First of all, the irrebuttability theory that's presented to you today is solely and exclusively a product of this Court's decision in Pittston Coal Group. It has never before been suggested. If these cases that are here before you today had, almost 20 years ago, been presented to the Social Security Administration based upon the records that are here, I am confident that they would have been denied. The claims processors working for that agency would not have ignored the relevant and persuasive evidence that these people did not have pneumoconiosis or any related disability. The only thing that we can document that the Social Security Administration really did differently is that it did not do much to defend black lung claims. It wrote regulations, as did the Department of Labor, that presumed all of these hard parts of the case in favor of the claimant. But it made no effort, or, or almost no effort, to assume the burden that it placed upon itself. <clears throat> it is this practice, we believe, that the claimants want this court to revive. They don't want an adversary. They Are you talking about to rebut the presumption? The burden to establish that the minor does not have pneumoconiosis or that any disability the minor has did not arise out of or in any part out of no. pneumoconiosis. Mr. Solomons, would it have been open uh, to such proof under the old HEW? Regulations. Justice O'Connor, we think that the old HEW regulations were clearly open to such proof. We're talking, if we're, we're talking... They don't talk about it directly. They talk about In it fact, indirectly. Uh, it is not clear, I think, what would have happened under those old regulations. Justice O'Connor, I think that th that may be correct, and it's, they're very difficult to read. They're messy and complex regulations that were, were adopted by the Social Security, Security Administration. But nevertheless, they do not say that they're irrebuttable, 
And through the cross-references, which is apparently the way the Social Security Administration regulated in those days, you get to, and not, in, and not on a very hard path, you get to provisions within those regulations that raise criteria that are identical to those criteria that the Department of Labor put in its regulations. The Department of Labor's regulations are neater. The Department of Labor's regulations are designed for adversary proceedings. And I think in, in all of the, 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 the attention this has gotten, not only from this Court, and this Court has had this before three times, and there's a fourth case waiting in the ring, wings, and the Courts of Appeals have seen many times, the one thing that, that, that we have not yet focused upon in looking at and comparing the Social Security regulations with the Department of Labor's regulations is that they are designed for different audiences and for different purposes. Department of Labor's regulation is designed for adversary proceedings and for application by judges, administrative law judges or other judges. Yes, but nevertheless, whatever they're designed for, Congress has said that the uh, Department of Labor should... Uh not have regulations any stricter than uh, the than <coughs> HEW. That's right. Well, oh, if you could rebut, uh, if you couldn't rebut the case under the Social Security regulations by evidence that the Department of Labor permits, isn't that one of the claims in this case? Uh, that is the claim. Yes. We think that this, the, the Social Security regulations, if you go through them, and they don't work very neatly, but if you do go through them, each one of those issues is open to factual inquiry, every single one of them. All you have to do is follow the cross-references. But as I said... Well, do we know how it was applied by HEW? What we do know... Now, there are, there, there are very few cases that arise out of the Social Security program. I think there are probably no more than 100 or 200 published decisions out of 600,000 cases. There are a couple of cases which, which show that the Social Security Administration, at least when they got to court, never treated this presumption as being exclusive of anything. It was just an administrative rule. In one of the cases we cited, Farmer versus Weinberger, the agency came in and uh, argued that uh, uh, you rebutted a death claim under the, the part that says rebuttal. Uh, in another case, much later on, they, they came in and they did, as we suggest, apply a, uh, a primary reason test to disability causation. There are very few cases. But what we do know, and, and, and we, we readily concede that the factual issues that are, that are presented in, in these kinds of cases are difficult ones, and they cannot be decided without expert testimony without medical evidence. The Social Security Administration did not get the kind of expert testimony that exists in these cases. Now, there's nothing any place that, that, that anybody's been able to find that show that these presumptions were rebuttable or that Social Security claims personnel were, were unable to look at evidence that came in the door. They're not trained to, to function that way, it seems to me. They are trained to look at what comes in the door. Nobody told them not to do that. And it seems that that's what they would have done in these kinds of cases, except that the agency, it said because it lacked resources. It said because there were not enough testing facilities in, the, in coal mining regions. It said that these were very hard questions and they didn't really know exactly how to resolve them. And so they didn't do anything. But let me suggest to you that that is not a criterion that a lack of resources is not a criterion that is picked up by this statute. You say that the lack of resources resulted in the Social Security Administration not developing any evidence of its own? They did not develop the hard evidence, Mr. Chief Justice. Well, what's hard evidence? The hard evidence is the kind of evidence that you need to prove that a minor's disability, if in fact he has a, a respiratory impairment, is not due to black lung disease. That is hard evidence. Or causation, or that his disability is caused by it. That's right. It is hard to show, but by no means impossible. It, it's shown all the time, but it is hard to show that an individual who has pulmonary impairment, uh, whether that impairment in fact arose out of the minor's coal mine employment, uh, that's hard, too. But the agency didn't do it. They said they didn't do it. They reported to Congress that they didn't do it and that they couldn't do it and that they didn't have You say that's why the Social Security people resolved cases the way they did, not because of an irrebuttable presumption, but because there was no evidence supporting the other view. 
Well, they created a presumption for use by their claims personnel, which to me looks to some degree like the Social Security grid. It doesn't have an invocation section. What it does is it moves through the steps in the case, and at each step in the presumption, in this section 410-490, you look at a different issue of ultimate fact. But the way the regulation is set up, and the Department of Labor certainly followed this, is they, they did it in a way so that the fact was presumed on the basis of something. If there was nothing there and the claims processor is looking at it, he moves along to the next step. That's not the way the labor presumption worked, but nevertheless, the labor presumption is not more restrictive. We think that the labor presumption is less restrictive in, so, in several ways. We think that the labor presumption is more favorable to claimants and that it probably had to be because there was going to be adversity in these cases. And labor knew that. And there was no adversity in the Social Security cases. And they did not need to be precise in designing a, a standard for application by judges in formal proceedings, as, labor, as the Labor Department did. This is not a case where the Labor Department was an outlaw agency. The Labor Department did what it was told to do, and the Labor Department, I think, favoring claimants at a time when the agency itself was very much in favor of this legislation. The Labor Department did an excellent job in establishing a rule which is extremely liberal. It caused a 1,200% increase in the claims that they, were, that they were reviewing, in the approvals of claims that they were reviewing. This agency was not an outlaw. It was not a rogue agency. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Are there any further questions? Very well, Mr. Solomons. Uh, Mr. Wright, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice O'Connor, in response to your question, we know relatively little about how HEW administered the program. But let me call to your attention two things that we do know that were reported in uh, one of the GAO reports and in uh, uh, the congressional uh, legislative history. <clears throat> HEW reported that in cases where the record before it showed that a minor died from an automobile accident or from a malignancy in another organ of the body, it did not award benefits. We, we think that that shows that it, it would have done the same thing in a case where the evidence And how do we know that? From what? From H a report? The GAO report that cited and the congressional uh, record testimony. We've cited both of those in our reply brief. Um, <clears throat> The GAO report deal with the black lung program and the Social Security agency? Yes, it did, Your Honor. And, and Justice White, in response to your question, uh, you paraphrased Section 402F2 in a way that I know we sometimes do, that it said that the labor was to adopt HEW's regulation. What Section 402F2 actually says is, that labor is, is to apply criteria no more restrictive than those applicable on June 30th, 1973. Now, HEW's regulation was applicable on that date, but so, was, so were many other things, including Part B of the Act generally. And I'd like to focus on the fact that the Act uh, provides repeatedly that black lung benefits are only to be awarded persons who are totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis. The phrase due to pneumoconiosis captures both the requirement that the minor must have the disease and the requirement that his disability must be caused by the disease. Well, then, uh, I suppose uh, it would follow that if the regulations uh, uh, didn't provide for a rebuttal on those, either one of those two bases, the regulation would be contrary to the statute. That's our position exactly, Justice yes. White. Uh, the first section of the Black Lung Benefits Act says that its purpose is to provide benefits to minors totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis. The section authorizing HEW to promulgate regulations says that it is to set forth standards to determine whether a minor is totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis. The rate schedules have a provision minors totally disabled 
due to pneumoconiosis. No provision of the Act hints that anyone who is, does not have black lung disease or is disabled by some other cause is entitled to benefits. The three words due to pneumoconiosis in effect summarize Labor's third and fourth rebuttal provisions, the provisions at issue in this case. We don't think that a, a regulation that implements the statute is contrary to the statute. Uh, Dayton and Taylor, uh, who do not have the disease, do not suggest any reason why they should be entitled to benefits. Uh, Pauli suggests that she should be awarded benefits because it's too difficult to determine what caused a disability. Well, as I've just stated, the statute repeatedly sets forth a causation requirement. So Congress clearly thought that it was possible. As Mr. Solomon says, uh, doctors and agencies have been determining causes of disabilities uh, for years under this program. In many cases, it is obviously quite simple. The automobile accident hypothetical uh, reveals a lot in our view. The claimants have absolutely no argument as to why benefits should not be awarded in such a case. And it seems quite clear to us that Congress did not intend such a result, which can fairly be characterized as absurd under the statute. <clears throat> I must acknowledge, Mr. Wright, however, that it's very, it's very hard to get there through the uh, HEW regulations. And, and you and the mining companies don't even agree on how you get there through the HEW regulations. Well, of course, I, it's hard to get anywhere through the HEW regulations. I understand that. I would be very happy to acknowledge that, Justice Scalia. Um, I, I would say that we, we do agree on how you get there with respect to minors not ha who don't have black lung disease. Uh, we have actually uh, <coughs> emphasized different routes for minors who are not totally disabled, but, uh, but we've both endorsed each other's positions uh, on, on that issue as well. We think this Court's decision in uh, the Turner-Elkhorn case is very instructive. That decision was handed down in 1976, <clears throat> two years before Section 402F2 was adopted. One of the uh, provisions of the Act, the one provision that sets forth an irrebuttable presumption for minors with the advanced stage of the disease, what was at issue? Uh, this Court rejected the coal company's claims that that, that uh, presumption was infirm under the Due Process Clause. But even with respect to it, the Court said uh, that, that, uh, that it's, it's perfectly clear under the Act that uh, an operator can be liable only for pneumoconiosis arising out of employment in a coal mine, even though that particular provision didn't say that in so many words. We think that Congress, acting two years later in adopting Section 402F2, must have also thought it perfectly evident under the Act that an operator can be liable only for pneumoconiosis arising out of employment in a coal mine. I'd like to say a word about uh, an argument that the uh, claimants have suggested with respect to the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. They've suggested that even if the operators can't be liable, where a minor is not totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis, the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund can, and they think that this avoids the constitutional problems. Now, we disagree on that. We, we don't see how it really makes a difference whether an operator pays or whether a fund that is funded by a tax on coal, sold by coal companies, pays. But we'd also like to note that the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, by its name, seems to imply that it uh, gives awards in cases involving black lung disability. And furthermore, I'd like to point out that the provision of the act that they rely on in making this argument uh, just doesn't support their position at all. That's Section four, uh, 422C of the act, which says that no operator shall be responsible for paying benefits to a minor whose disability did not arise, at least in part, out of employment in a mine during a period after December 31, 1969, when it was operated by such minor. That provision just says that the trust fund pays benefits 
where the miner stopped working before the Black Lung Benefits Act was enacted, just as it does in cases where uh, the operator is insolvent or, or for some other reason isn't paying benefits. It, it does not suggest in any way that the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund is available where a minor either does not have black lung disease or is not disabled by it. If there are no more questions, I have nothing further. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Uh, Mr. Henriquez, we'll hear from you now. Do you agree, Mr. Henriquez, that uh, uh, Dayton and Taylor do not have black lung disease? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the fact finders found that they did not, but the question of whether a person has black lung disease in a case involving ventilatory studies or blood gas tests, their types of cases, uh, is one in which the state of the medical art, HEW's view in 1972, was that the state of the medical art had simply not advanced far enough to be able to make the determination about whether a person's respiratory or pulmonary impairment... I was asking as a question of present fact. Uh, present fact is that there's no indication in the legislative history that the state of the medical art... I was just asking as a question of present fact whether or not Dayton and Taylor have black lung disease. Well, I, my, I get, my response is that we don't know because the state of the medical art does not allow you to know. The fact finders found that they do not. That's so. But uh, HEW believed that such findings of fact were inherently inaccurate. Uh, that's why I can't answer that when yes or no. Isn't, isn't that why they didn't allow the, uh, this particular type of medical evidence to create the presumption under the old regulations? We believe that that's so, too. And uh, isn't it true, therefore, that which, I don't remember which it was now, but the particular minor who proved his case by those studies would have failed under the HEW regulations? The, uh, in me, that was rather clear as to that one minor. Well, there were, there were two minors. Therefore, it's a little hard to see how he can be claiming that the Social Department of Labor regulation is more restrictive than the HEW regulation. I believe you're referring to there were two minors. Uh, uh, Mr. Dayton uh, established the presumption using ventilatory study evidence. That was uh, a... Uh, the Taylor relied on the blood gas study. Taylor relied on the blood gas study. Which would not have entitled him to the presumption under the, under the HEW regu <coughs> regulation. That is correct, uh, the, but at the time it would have been futile for HEW to have included blood gas tests. Well, that, that may well be true, but that this is a case, it seems to me, which clearly would have failed under the prior regulation, so I find it difficult to understand how the Department of Labor regulation, at least as to that minor, is more restrictive. Well, as we say in Mr. Taylor's brief, it turns on the specific word criteria in the statute and the distinction between substantive criteria on the one hand and forms of evidence on the other. And since blood gas studies show the same fact element, the presence of a respiratory or pulmonary impairment, same fact element that ventilatory studies show, uh, we believe that DOL later, when it no longer was futile to establish standards for blood gas studies, had to apply the same uh, criteria with respect to blood gas study cases as it did with respect to ventilatory study cases. That was, that's the nature of our argument in the... Uh, uh, the word in the criteria has troubled us in the past. Yeah. Uh, these uh, consolidated cases turn on a face of the statute question and on a face of the regulation question. The face of the statute question is simple because this Court's decision in seven has already answered it. And the face of the regulation question is, is a straight, has a straightforward resolution, too, because there's only one permissible interpretation of these uh, interim regulations that are pertinent to the case. Now, the regulations are not the model of clarity, but they're clear enough to be able to ascertain that there's simply no permissible interpretation that would allow the extra rebuttal tests of the DOL interim regulation to be read into them. Now, first with respect to the statutory question, the centerpiece of the 1978 amendments to the Black Lung Benefits Act was Section 402F2. Section 402F2 prohibited the Secretary of Labor from adjudicating claims using criteria that were more restrictive to claimants 
and the criteria in effect or applicable on June 30, 1973. The question in this case would have been which criteria were applicable on June 30, 1973, except that the, this Court's decision in 7 has already answered that question. Uh, 7 answered it holding that the criteria applicable on June 30, 1973 include the criteria of the HEW interim provision. And because the criteria of the HEW interim provision are the most favorable criteria to claimants, Section 402F2 of the Act prohibited the Secretary of Labor from using, uh, from, a, from adjudicating claims using the criteria that are more restrictive than the criteria of the HEW interim provision. So the HEW interim provision is the touchstone of Section 402F2 of the Act. Now the regulatory question. The regulatory question is whether any rebuttal criteria of the DOL interim regulation make that regulation more restrictive to claimants than the HEW interim provision. Now, this question has a straightforward resolution, just as the statutory question does. Uh, the HEW interim provision has two, has only two rebuttal tests, whereas the DOL interim regulation has four rebuttal tests. The DOL regulation has the same two rebuttal tests as the HEW provision and two additional ones as well. The two additional rebuttal tests of the DOL regulation pertain to disability causation and to the presence of pneumoconiosis. Each of the DOL interim regulations two extra rebuttal tests makes it easier for opponents to rebut the, HE, the DOL interim regulation than to rebut the HEW interim regulation. So on its face, the DOL interim regulation is more restrictive to claimants than the HEW interim provision in violation of Section 402F2. Now, your, your opponents disagree with you as to the rebuttability of the HEW systems, don't they? They do. Uh, they contend that this regulation is confusing, can be read to include provisions like the two extra rebuttal tests of the DOL interim regulation, and they offer varying readings of the HEW interim provision that contradict each other. But none of the readings that they offer is a permissible interpretation of the HEW interim provision. When the HEW interim provision is carefully scrutinized in light of HEW's own interpretation of it in its coal miners benefits manual, no permissible interpretation of it can include any provisions like the two extra rebuttal tests of the DOL interim regulation. So the, the struggle in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the questioning uh, when my opponents were here talking to you uh, was about what did, a, what did HEW, what did the Social Security Administration uh, really do in these cases? What we know, and, and something that they did not mention, what we know is that they issued a, the coal miners benefits manual. Uh, they issued it three weeks after the HEW interim provision was promulgated. Uh, and that coal miners benefits manual is their contemporaneous interpretation, SSA, is its contemporaneous inter interpretation of its interim provision. Uh, and it makes clear beyond peradventure that with respect to these extra rebuttal tests that labor later added, HEW simply did not allow inquiries into anything like those two extra rebuttal tests. Do you think that would be valid under the statute, that regulation? Yes, we, it, it, it is. I mean, at the time, at the time. It was valid. Although the uh, act is aimed at, uh, at uh, giving benefits to those who have this disease caused by coal mining. Right. That's the superficial. And so the, it would be all right for, for the agency to say, well, you can't uh, offer any evidence that uh, rebuts the notion that, uh, of causation, for example. Right. That's the, uh, that's the superficially appealing point that our opponents you try to... You hope it's superficial. <laughs> <laughs> ...try to press in their briefs. They, they yeah. try to press the superficial point in their briefs. Yeah. The legislative rulemaking authority that Congress had delegated HEW was well broad enough, certainly broad enough, to, in, in, to allow SSA 
to decide to conclusively presume facts. Now, when we say conclusively presume, it's different than irrebuttability. Uh, this regulation was rebuttable. It was rebuttable by certain facts that were not directly related, directly related to disability causation or the presence of pneumoconiosis. But SSA believed that uh, it was permissible to indirectly prove these facts based on a minor who has pneumoconiosis and who is totally disabled uh, would prove these facts uh, by, uh, by a conclusive presumption based on, based on these facts. Now, the reason that SSA decided to do that was because it had come to the realization or the belief based on study, uh, HEW's officials and medical officers believed that the state of the medical art simply was not advanced far enough at the time to be able to allow fact finders and physicians to make reasoned determinations concerning uh, the element of disability causation. And let's, let's assume that the state of the medical art had changed between then and now so that you really can determine uh, causation. You would say, nevertheless, that uh, until Congress changes the, the act, you have to go by the uh, HEW regulations. Well, more than that, uh, Congress decided in Section 402F2 of the Act to incorporate uh, the HEW interim provision. Uh, it specifically said uh, the Secretary of Labor cannot apply criteria more restrictive than the criteria in effect on June 30, 1973, and those criteria included the HEW interim provision, the most liberal, the most favorable uh, regulations uh, to claimants at the time. That was the touchstone of Section 402F2. Although you don't think it, uh, mo it modifies the criteria to, uh, uh, to update uh, medical science uh, for purposes of determining whether, uh, whether your client has uh, uh, black lung disease. Only, only, it only altered because uh, the first point that was put to you by, by Justice Stevens. Why, why isn't it that, uh, that the minor here who, uh, who benefited by the updating in medical knowledge, why doesn't he have uh, a much more liberal criterion applied to him than HEW applied. And you said, well, you know, medical knowledge has advanced, and, and, uh, and we use it. But, but you only use it on one side. No, I, the, the, uh, Justice Scalia, I believe that uh, it's permissible for two different agencies to come to a con different conclusions about the state of the medical art. There were physicians that testified on both sides of the question. Well, it's not just two different agencies. It's 20 years. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time in, in, uh, in medical uh, technology. That may be so, but there's nothing in the legislative history that suggests that the state of the medical art has advanced far enough even now. Uh, the, there, that was that legislative history cover whether the medical art has, uh, has advanced. They, they were leaving that to fact finders. Well, I, we believe that we don't need to resort to the legislative history because what SSA's view was is why they left the two rebuttal tests out of, the, of its own interim provision. And Congress took that at face value in 1972. There's no suggestion anywhere in the legislative history that uh, the that DOL could change it, the regulation based on even its different view, if it had one, that the state of the medical art had been updated. Are you saying that in no case was the medical art with respect to the two additional criteria, in no case could it demonstrate that pneumo... Uh, no. Say it for me. Pneumoconiosis. There it is. In no case could it, uh, could it determine that that didn't exist? No, there are obviously cases in which uh, the, uh, uh, it would have been possible to conclude that. But well, we have why wouldn't that be a violation of, of the statute? If the statute says you have to have black lung disease and it has to have been caused by coal mining, and if at least in some cases the, me the medical technology, as crude as it was, could demonstrate absolutely that you didn't have it or that you didn't get it from coal mining, why wouldn't that be a violation of the statute for, for, for HEW to say absolutely you can't use it in any case? Because HEW was an administrative agency and had a line drawing problem, the typical kind of line drawing problem in the law. They had to decide whether to be under-inclusive or to be over-inclusive. And they made the decision that... Uh, no, but this is a rebuttal. I mean, the burden is, is, is on, the, on the employer at that time on HEW. Your client gets the benefit of the doubt. But in at least, if, if in one case in, in a hundred, I can come in and show conclusively th that this is true, what, what harm is there in, in, in letting me show that? Because if, if HEW's view 
was that it was virtually impossible to prove. That necessarily meant that isn't that wasn't no problem. Then then the then the employee wins. No, because physicians didn't necessarily share that view. Employers could go out and hire physicians who believed that they could give an opinion, an opinion that would defeat the claim. Nevertheless, HEW's view was such opinions are uh, are inaccurate, inherently inaccurate. Mm-hmm. HEW, may, as an administrative agency, had the authority to make the decision. Uh, as between competing views in the medical community as to which one was right. And they concluded that it was virtually impossible. Uh, that wasn't, certainly some physicians disagreed with that, and employers could get them to write opinions that would beat claims. HEW took that away from the physicians and from the administrative law judges. That's why the HEW had a line drawing problem. By drawing the line where it did, it avoided being under-inclusive. It ensured that all deserving claimants would get benefits. It also meant that some undeserving claimants might get benefits as well, like the minor in the car accident hypothetical. Uh, but we've, we've, they've never shown anything to suggest that uh, uh, that, that minor, uh, that there is such a minor who ever filed a claim for benefits. They've never pulled anything out of a file, an unpublished published decision at any administrative or judicial level showing that that minor uh, even existed. So we may have a problem. They raise that as a specter, but it may be a non-existent downside of the traditional rulemaking line-drawing problem. I thought they argued that these minors fit that category because they didn't have the disease. <coughs> Why aren't these just like uh, somebody who got killed in an automobile accident? Under SS- been in the mines for 10 years and had pneumonia or something else, you know. Uh, our opponents say that SSA would not have approved benefits in these claims. Well, why wouldn't they? I don't understand why they wouldn't. If they, if they were in the mines for 10 years and they had, had some, some, uh, uh, some ailment that was, you know, qualified for the presumption, why wouldn't they, reco- why wouldn't they have recovered under uh, your view of the earlier record? They would have. They, would. they certainly would have recovered under the HEW interim provision. Even if they could prove later without beyond a shadow of a doubt they did not, <coughs> did not have serious pneumoconiosis, if that's the way you pronounce it, and also uh, that they rather the cause of their their uh, disability was an automobile accident. Right, because the HEW interim provision did not address those inquiries. But again... Well, how is it that HEW reported to the contrary to the GAO, do you suppose? Uh, excuse me, I... How do you explain, then, the HEW report to the GAO? HEW's report to the GAO was that it was virtually impossible to make these determinations. Uh, that's why it didn't include the disability causation. And I thought it, it also established that some claims were denied. Um, For instance, the uh, auto accident case. That is uh, incorrect. There, the, any representation that may have been made to you that the car accident hypothetical would have lost is incorrect. The car accident hypothetical would have won. Uh, and we realize that such a minor would not have been a deserving minor, but he would have won. The, the, it's a downside of the line-drawing problem. It simply was not feasible to draw a line that would exclude everything. It's like the morning uh, uh, versus family publications case. You it's very difficult for legislator, legislatures and agencies which legislatively rulemake to draw precise lines. But again, I'd like to emphasize that uh, the government and the coal industries have access to all the files uh, in all the cases, and they haven't shown you evidence of even one case in which a claim was even filed that had that was based on an accident of any kind, much less a car accident. Mr. Henriquez, I didn't think that the car accident hypothetical was one that had been invented. I, my, my recollection was that that was something contained in the in the report to the GAO. Is it? Am I wrong about that? Uh, I don't, I've never seen any reference. I certainly don't remember any reference uh, of a car accident hypothetical in any report to the GAO. Uh, the first time we've heard of the car accident hypothetical is in the briefs of our opponents. It's a specter that they've raised that may well be non-existent. They haven't backed it up with even any indication that there was ever such a claim filed. Besides deciding that its interim provision would conclusively presume disability causation, HEW also decided that it would conclusively presume the presence of pneumoconiosis in ventilatory study cases. As we... Uh, May I just clarify one? When you say conclusively presume, is that a term that's used in either the HEW regulation or the manual that you... I haven't looked at the manual. 
No, it is not. It's a, it's a well, term. term that, well, who, who, who introduced the word conclusive? We coined it in our briefs, oh, wow. and uh, <laughs> it's fraught with problems, yeah. but uh, uh, the it notion that... It fraught with problems if it was in the regulation, but... <laughs> the, the regulation does conclusively presume it in the sense that we use it because it says on its face, uh, HEW recognized the act's uh, uh, requirement that minors be totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis. And, it, and the regulation, the HEW regulation, says that minors who invoke the presumption get a presumption that they are totally disabled due to pneumoconiosis arising out of coal mine employment. Yes, but as, as I remember the text of the regulation, it does not say that the, the presumption is irrebuttable or conclusive. It doesn't use those words, right. but uh, um, it, it, it's, it all but uses the words because it specifically says that you obtain the presumption by invoking the presumption, and then when you look at rebuttal, there is no rebuttal test that addresses that uh, directly the uh, in, or indirectly. No, that's true. But but supposing, for example, after they get all through, they find out that the man is just a, uh, there's a forgery. I mean, there, there sometimes you can rebut claims in ways that are not spelled out as the normal methods of rebuttal. I don't I don't I don't think it necessarily follows because you have two methods of rebuttal specified in the regulation that that's an exhaustive list. It doesn't say these two ways and no others. I believe it does say these two ways and no others. Uh, certainly, the natural, uh, a natural reading of the regulation says that um, you invoke by meeting the, the invocation provisions, and then when you wish to, when the opponent uh, is going to rebut, here are the ways that you can rebut. Uh, it doesn't say only. It could have said only very easily. The, the section C says the presumption in paragraph B may be rebutted if. It right. could have said may be rebutted only if, if it really meant that, that those are the only ways to do it. Well, any doubt about that is re certainly resolved, and I don't think there is doubt about it because the natural reading of a regulation, I think, would be that uh, you list two rebuttal tests. You certainly – a disability causation under the statute is an element. It's omitted from the regulation. Something is central to that when it's omitted, uh, but the manual, the manual. That, that might be a natural reading if it wouldn't lead to such a natural result that somebody who, who, who dies in an automobile accident uh, uh, gets compensated for dying from black lung. I mean, if you want to talk about natural meaning. But the but HEW had a, had a line-drawing problem. And uh, if they, in order to draw a line that would have excluded the car accident hypothetical, uh, it would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible, to, uh, to not exclude deserving claimants. And that's, and that's the problem. Uh, and it was certainly within HEW's reasonable exercise of its rulemaking discretion uh, to draw that line. Well, how is it reasonable, though, to draw a line that's contrary to the whole thrust of the statute? I just don't understand how such a, a, a regulatory scheme could possibly be deemed a reasonable interpretation of the statute. Uh, the, one of the uh, judgments that an agency would, would make is, uh, what's the likelihood that there will be cases that, uh, that would win uh, for, with respect to undeserving clients, uh, and uh, because you can't draw a line that's perfect. And, and as I said, uh, the theoretical possibility that a car accident hypothetical may, uh, the, the person in the car accident hypothetical may get benefits is only a theoretical possibility. We've seen no evidence that any such person ever received benefits or any other undeserving person uh, ever received benefits although we readily acknowledge that it was theoretically possible. What about these cases? What about the, these cases? Somebody, the, the, uh, the issue is whether uh, you can prove, you'd be allowed to prove uh, that uh, these claimants didn't have the disease or that the disease wasn't caused by coal mining. That's and uh, you say uh, it doesn't make any difference. We can assume that they could prove it by present medical standards. But nevertheless, uh, they get benefits. These three cases are, we think, paradigm uh, cases for the wisdom of HEW's rule. Uh, are there a lot of these cases out there somewhere? Like the three cases like these here? Are? These, are, these are absolutely typical kinds of cases. How many? Uh, thousands of them? Uh, the government estimates that the remaining number of cases is uh, uh, anywhere from 2,500 up to uh, a couple thousand more. Um, but these are the paradigm oh, cases. Not 2,500 cases in which the ALJ has found there was either no causation or no black lung disease at all. 
Uh, yeah, when I'm, excuse me, uh, uh, Justice Stevens, one, what I meant was 2,500 remaining cases right, out there. And, and there are some un- of those in which the employer or the burden, see, the, the thing that troubles me about your argument is that all this uncertainty means that uh, once the minor gets the benefit of the presumption, he's normally going to win because the uncertainty makes it very difficult to rebut the presumption. But if you do have the unusual case in which the evidence clearly establishes the absence of the disease or the absence of causation, it seems to me there it's rather unusual to say we just won't permit the rebuttal to come in. Because then the minor is getting not only the benefit of uncertainty, but the benefit of a conclusive presumption that I don't see mentioned anywhere in any of the materials. Well, the, uh, uh, the agency um, had to, did take that in consideration. And the Comptroller General's report that talks about HEW's decisions in this regard makes it clear how, just how difficult it is to tell pneumoconiosis apart from other conditions. And they weren't just other respiratory conditions. Which means other- that in 99 cases out of 100 close cases, the minor will win. And, and he gets the presumption. And in that, that, that is so. Uh, but in those cases, the, the, met, the medical art simply could not, uh, in HEW's view, be, was not advanced far enough uh, at the time then, perhaps also now, to be able to allow the determination to be made as to whether uh, that it wasn't pneumoconiosis. And so HEW made the reasonable decision that we're going to look at the reasonable connection between having pneumoconiosis and being totally disabled and saying that the reasonable connection is uh, that, that, it's, that the disability occurred. Uh, in other words, proving the fact of disability causation indirectly was, in their view, more, a more accurate endeavor than to try to allow uh, uh, physicians to prove it directly when the state of the medical art did not allow that determination. Um, the, the other point, and, and HEW also was under instructions from Congress. Congress clearly encouraged HEW to eliminate this huge backlog of claims using uh, interim criteria. And the Comptroller General's report says that one of the primary causes for this backlog of claims was uh, the, this, in, this inadequacy in the state of the medical art to prove disability causation. So the agency says... Uh, uh, look, we've got to eliminate this. We have this problem in the state of the medical art. It's, you, it, it uses lots of resources for us to get doctors' opinions and then to assess them. Let's uh, eliminate, let's follow Congress's directive. Let's eliminate this backlog of claims uh, and at the same time uh, follow what we believe the state of the medical art requires, which is not to uh, inquire into disability causation directly, but only to do so indirectly. It seems to me you eliminate the backlog just as effectively by simply adopting a presumption, and then al- although you may have uh, uh, ability to rebutting it, sim- uh, to rebut it, simply not rebutting it. The uh, but again, uh, nothing would have prevented physicians from issuing decisions that HEW had already determined could not be accurate. Uh, if, the, if, if they believe that the state of the medical art is inadequate and physicians nevertheless, an individual physician in an individual case is asked to write an opinion, that opinion may be one that says, like in these cases, it says that uh, the disability causation didn't happen or the presence of pneumoconiosis was not there when they focus on diseases that HEW said you can't tell from pneumoconiosis. You can't tell. Uh, nothing prevented physicians from issuing opinions, but HEW believed those opinions were not accurate. That's why HEW excluded the disability causation inquiry. I don't, I don't understand where these physicians would come from. Uh, I, I assume HEW is in charge of the investigation, either HEW or the claimant. And if HEW doesn't ask the physician for these kinds of studies that they, that they think aren't worth anything, are these roaming physicians that would just come in and say, by the way, I have a study I want you to... To hear about in this no, case? I thought you were positing the no. point. Let's say the HEW interim provision did allow rebuttal. I mean, it seems to me HEW get, get rid of its backlog very easily as it did by adopting presumptions. And if there's nothing brought in to refute them, the presumptions will carry the day. That would, that would get rid of the backlog. Well, the, the backlog, HEW still would have had to assess the medical evidence, obtain it, and then assess it, which was an enormous administrative undertaking, whether or not they, it's focused on, on invocation or on rebuttal. That doesn't eliminate the, uh, the administrative uh, burden of the backlog of claims. The way to eliminate that is to tell, is to say we're no longer going to focus on that evidence, so physicians need not give us that information. 
Now, I, 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 the reason why I responded to your statement about where the physicians' reports come from is I thought you were positing the question of... Thank you, Mr. Henricus. Your time has expired. Mr. Solomons, you have rebuttal. You have four minutes remaining. A few things, Mr. Chief Justice. First, I would like to address <coughs> some of the points that were made with respect to the GAO study. Uh, although I think that is, it is of limited significance, nevertheless, this was an investigation by uh, the investigative arm of Congress. They came in, they leveled charges at the agency, said you're not doing these things that you ought to be doing. And the agency came back and they said, oh, well, it's real hard to do them and we don't have the resources to do them. And then on the medical issues, they said that, and this, by the way, as far as we know, never appeared in any congressional materials, they said, uh, citing a magazine article, that it's very difficult to make these kinds of factual determinations. This is one of the most studied diseases on the face of the earth. The magazine article is hardly proof of anything in, in, in any form, it seems to me. But one of the things that's very interesting, the, the uh, uh, looking only at this, um, this GAO report, Social Security on page 36 of the report told the investigators so, uh, I will read it to you. Social Security officials told us that benefits were almost always denied in cases of deaths which occurred less than 24 hours after onset of acute uh, diseases or traumas, such as coronary occlusions or uh, so forth and so on. Um, I don't have a crystal ball to go back and tell you precisely how SSA would have handled any particular case, but neither do the claimants. It seems to me, however, that if they wanted to do something as radical as to adopt a, an irrebuttable presumption to, to, to tell their employees, who, who have very few of those kinds of irrebuttable presumptions in, in the jobs that they do, that this is the way you're going to do it. You're, you're going to ignore evidence of certain types in these cases, that they would have done it somewhat more uh, clearly than they did. And in fact, there is an irrebuttable presumption in the statute, <clears throat> and they did instruct their employees how to use it. But this presumption, the Social Security presumption, is not one that was irrebuttable. I would also like to address the, the, the question of the meaning of, of term criteria in Section 402F2. It's a broad word. It doesn't say adopt their regulation. It says adopt the criteria applicable. The criteria applicable include the statute, which had lots of criteria in them, and, and in many cases the responses of the claimants to that is that these are effectively repealed by implication, but I don't think you can make a case for that. It includes the interim adjudicatory criteria and includes the rest of Social Security's regulations to the extent that they are applicable. Those regulations bring in, we think very clearly, as, by the way, does the manual. I think the manual is, is devastating to this case because the manual brings in all sorts of, of factual inquiries, as I read it, into causation and uh, disease and, and, and anything that comes in. But let me address what's not a criterion, I think. Obtuseness in the drafting of this regulation is not a criterion. A lack of resources on the part of the Social Security Administration is not a criterion. Failure to file, follow the Federal Register style handbook and not using, overusing cross-references is not a criterion. And the state of the medical art in 1972 is not a criterion either. It seems to me that, that the Department of Labor, again, did the job that it was supposed to do here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Solomons. The case is submitted.